I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey there, it's Luke. Uh, We're going to get started with the Livewire podcast in just a moment. First, though... How about a look behind the podcast curtain? By that, I mean it is the start of our fall member drive. And if you listen to this show on a regular basis, you know that when you tune into LiveWire, you tend to hear conversations that you won't hear anywhere else on public radio. You tend to hear music that you might not hear anywhere else on public radio, comedy, um, thought-provoking interviews, All kinds of uh, great stuff that we're so proud to bring to you week in and week out. The thing you don't hear when you're listening to Livewire, though, is all of the stuff that went into making each episode happen. I'm talking about some real basic things like microphones. Our technical director, Molly Pettit, is at the theater hours and hours before the show setting up all of the audio gear so that it is ready to go and in working condition when the show commences. Uh, Then, when the show is underway, there's the question of who's going to come on stage and talk to me. Well, those people have to be identified months in advance. So we've got some folks that are always looking for who our next great guest is. Then they've got to make contact with them and figure out how to get that person to Portland, which usually means putting them on an airplane. And then once the show has actually been recorded, we have folks who edit the show down, and polish it up. We have a a person whose job it is to just make sure that the audio is the highest quality that it can be before it comes out of your radio speaker or your podcast player into your earbuds. Um, All of this stuff happens behind the scenes, and all of this stuff costs money. And yet, we put this podcast up on the internet and this radio show out on public radio stations absolutely for free. And we wouldn't have it any other way. This is what we love doing. We have more than a quarter of a million people who tune into LiveWire each week. And we ask that every single person listening to this, in whatever form or fashion they are, give to LiveWire. Because LiveWire is member-supported. If you like this show, I'm asking you, during our fall member drive, to say yes. Say yes to being part of this community of LiveWire supporters who give a small amount of money each month to keep this thing going. 
Uh, how about $10 a month? $10 a month from everybody listening to my voice would set Livewire up for many, many years to come. Uh, that's all we're asking from you. Not, not a huge amount of money, but just something each month that can keep this whole operation going. Head over to livewireradio.org to donate. And if you donate right now, we're going to send you an awesome pair of custom Livewire socks as a way of saying thank you. Livewire is listener-supported and a non-profit organization. And i got to tell you, we're all in this thing together. We, the people who make the show, and you, the people who listen to the show. So thanks for being part of it. Head over to livewireradio.org or click on the link in the show description and help support us this fall. Thank you so much. Now take a listen to this Livewire. Welcome to Livewire, everyone. How's it going? I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Apologies for the voice. I got a little bit of a cold going. I'm sure you know how that feels. Hope you are having an awesome week. We have an awesome show for you because for the, I don't know, 13th or 14th year in a row, we are partnering with Wordstock, the Portland Book Festival. Um, each year, they bring all of these amazing writers to Portland for one weekend. And we just so happen to snag a couple of them for our show this week. I know you're going to dig this. Um, let's pick things up on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater. Take a listen. Well, we have sort of a literary theme this week. Our theme is Brave New World, which if you read the book Brave New World in high school, or even if, like me, you just lied and said you read the book Brave New World... <laughs> because you were trying to impress Megan Gerber. Um, you probably know that the, the gist of Brave New World is that in the future, there's going to be all this technology and innovation that is supposed to make our life better and happier and safer. And in fact, it doesn't really deliver on that promise. Um, I entered a Brave New World last week when I purchased an Apple Watch, <laughs> which I'm wearing right now, not to brag. Um, I made this purchase in the way that I make all of my major purchases now, online at 12.30 at night, <laughs> after three glasses of wine, after my wife had gone to sleep, <laughs> which is just like an immediate red flag on any decision that you're making. Do you have to wait until your wife has gone to sleep? <laughs> like in the history of the world, there are very few really noble things that have happened where the person had to wait for their wife to go to sleep before they could do it. <laughs> I was intrigued by this device because unlike its predecessors, uh, it apparently can exist separate from the cell phone. So you can leave your phone at home and go out in the world and if somebody needs to call you or text you or whatever, it'll just go right to the watch. And this was a very appealing idea to me because like a lot of people, I have a very complicated relationship with my cell phone. I have, I'm far too fascinated with what is going on with it all the time, uh, whether it's social media stuff or the truly bananas news cycle that we live in. I'm always looking at this thing, and so the idea that I could sort of cut the cord a little bit was, really had me thinking. Now, I just want to tell you, I understand the irony okay, of the fact that to fix my complicated relationship with technology, I needed to acquire more technology. 
That has been pointed out to me many times, mostly by my wife, who is not a fan of this particular trait of mine. Uh, my recent acquisition that she is really not a fan of is we have one of those Amazon robots in our kitchen. I can't even say the name of it because you're to watch yourself, sir. You just set off that device in public radio listening households all over America. People are getting like baseball scores they didn't ask for and weather reports. It's like ordering things online they didn't want. The reason that I got that thing in the kitchen was because I wanted to spend more time with my wife. And I thought, listen, I did not say you were going to hear a coherent worldview from me during this episode of Livewire. I'm just telling you how my brain works. I wanted to spend more time with my wife, and I thought, well, uh, we could cook together. We could be in the kitchen. That would be a fun family event. But I don't know how to cook anything, so I thought, well... If I get a robot that lives inside a hockey puck in the kitchen telling me directions and, and ingredients and things that maybe that would help this whole uh, version of my life unfold, it has not worked out that way. We have never used it for cooking. I will occasionally ask it why my wife doesn't like me, and it will say, I think you're nice. That is the answer that is built into the machine. If you say, why doesn't my wife like me? You think I'm joking, go home and try it. That's what it'll say to you. Okay, so I get the watch in the mail and I set it all up and the big day arrives. It's I'm gonna go out for an entire afternoon without the phone. And I put the phone down on a windowsill right by the front door and I open the front door of our house and I look at the phone and I look out the front door and I don't wanna over-dramatize this moment, but I think I kind of understand how Neil Armstrong felt like right before stepping out of the lunar module. I feel like I was kind of going where no man had gone before. I know I'm mixing my space metaphors there, but just go with me. So I do it, I go out in the world, no phone, just the watch, and I have an amazing afternoon. I am like talking to people in line, I'm making eye contact like a person. I, am, I go uh, to the coffee shop and I, just because I don't have the internet to distract me constantly with my phone, I'm doing all this other stuff. I read like half of that weird newspaper that Trader Joe's makes <laughs> called The Fearless Flyer. Just because it was in the coffee shop, it was the only thing to read. Some really good tips for Thanksgiving in there, by the way. So it was a wonderful day. And I felt okay about myself in the world because I knew I had this magical watch that if people really needed to get a hold of me, they could. And I never even looked at it the whole day. That was the interesting part. I got home, I picked up my phone, I had missed 42 emails and six calls. And I was like, what is going on with this watch? And I looked at it, the battery had died like two hours into the afternoon. I would, like, it was not getting, it was in low power mode, it was not getting any updates. And this whole day I had been thinking that this watch was keeping me tethered to this world that I thought I needed to be tethered to. And I realized it was like a placebo watch. <laughs> like, or it was like an emotional therapy watch. Like I needed to have it with me to feel okay in the world. But in fact, it, it was just there kind of on my wrist, not really doing anything. And I, I started thinking about it and what a nice day I had. And I, was, I felt empowered by this experience. 
The next thing I'm going to try to do, and I know it sounds crazy, I am planning on leaving the house without the phone or the watch. So pray for me, because it's going to be a... It's going to be a big day for me. Um, Our first guest has written an amazing book titled Animals Strike Curious Poses. It explores our relationship with well-known animals throughout history, starting with a 39,000-year-old mummified mammoth calf and worked its way up to modern times. She's also an actor and a professor, and even though she's probably tired of being introduced this way, we sort of can't resist. She's also the first ever female winner of something called the Stella Screaming Contest in New Orleans, which is exactly what it sounds like. Please welcome the multi-talented Elena Passarello to Livewire. Elena, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Hi, everybody. <laughs> this book is amazing. Um, I, I was reading it this week, and I think I went into it expecting one sort of thing, because it's described as a book about animals, uh, and it is, but it's also a book about how we relate to animals, and you, you cover so many different forms of writing in it. I mean, it's, it's really, really well done. So congratulations. Well, thank you so much. That's amazing to hear. Thank you. I'm wondering how you decided which animals you were going to write about. Oh, sure. So uh, I said, when I knew I wanted to write a book about animals, uh, w- one of the first things I realized is that is not a very small topic. There yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, there are more animals than there are people, and uh, I don't have a ton of time. I had a deadline. So I set all these little restrictions for myself, uh, trying to make the amount of topics that I could talk about smaller and smaller. And one of the things that I came up with was all of the animals in the book had to have a name. So someone in the course of human history had to have decided to give that animal a name and put it down in the historical record in some way. Uh, so I, uh, and I wanted, that meant that all of the animals in the book were going to be famous. So uh, I ended up picking 15 sort of celebrity animals over the course of human history. Well, you start in the ancient past. Like you start with, is it pronounced yucca? I think so, yeah. This uh, mammoth calf found in, I guess, is it Siberia? Yes, yes. Well, well, well tell me the story of Yuka a little bit. Well, I guess I should say that she, we don't, she wasn't named Yuka by a bunch of cave people or uh, something. Like, there's no, it wasn't like written, you know, in a, on a, some line. They went through thing. her wallet and they found yeah. her student ID card said Yuka. <laughs> That's right. There was another mammoth right next to her that had Yuka with a heart on it tattooed yeah, on they, its they trunk. They put and, two and two together. Yeah, they figured it out. Uh, she, uh, she was found in Siberia near a town, or the, town, the closest town to where they found her was, is called Yukagir. So that's how she got the name of Yuka. Once, uh, well, she sort of fell out of the permafrost in Siberia. This is something that's happening quite a bit now with the, uh, the changing temperature of that part of the world. It's much easier. Very diplomatically put, by the way. <laughs> I like how you're just... Climate change! We're going to be dead in like 20 years, Elena. Just face it. Yeah. But we're going to find some mammoths before, before that happens. So that's silver right. lining alert, I guess. Yeah, but I was actually very interested in how the how yucca was discovered because you write in the book that it was it should have been harder to unearth yucca, but it really like wasn't for the person who found her. 
Yeah, I think it's, it's become sort of an industry in that part of the country because the, the, the ground is softer. They're much, they reveal themselves much more quickly and they're much easier to unearth. So there's a big kind of war because there are people who want their tusks for commercial reasons and then scientists who are just desperate to learn more about these 40,000-year-old creatures that are intact and easy to investigate. Yuka had her own fur still on her. And it which was, you describe as being essentially kind of bright red? Yeah, she was a redhead, which when I was growing up and I saw these sort of imagined pictures of woolly mammoths, they were all brunettes. So uh, wh- why, were you, why were you attracted to yucca as a topic? Well, so I, I, she showed up kind of late in the process when I already knew that I wanted to write about animal celebrity and that I wanted to write about the various ways that humans looked at animals, all the way from the Chauvet Cave paintings in France to today with uh, like Cecil the Lion and, and Pizza Rat and all these kind of contemporary famous Yeah, there animals. is a dedication in the book to Pizza Rat. Yeah. Sort of. But then you say you're joking. You actually dedicate it to somebody else. But Pizza Rat does play yeah. somewhat of a role in this book. Pizza Rat's my boy. Yeah. yeah. For people that don't know, Pizza Rat was a rat in the New York subway that was dragging a piece of pizza. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Gonda the Rhinoceron. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a, a rhino that had been captured in Sumatra that was being brought around to other countries and displayed. And then there was a woodcut made. Mm-hmm. that became sort of famous in its time, I guess? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories that I found when I was putting the book together, and I rarely get to talk about it because the essay is so intense. I, I don't read it at bookstores and stuff. It's just a lot of like art history and visual description, so I'm so happy to tell you. Uh, uh, in 1515, uh, a rhinoceros had not showed up in Europe or been brought to Europe in over a 1,000 years, not since the Colosseum in Rome, and one of them finally made it to Portugal, where it was a gift to a head of state there. And somebody saw it and then wrote a description of it and sent it up to uh, Germany, uh, where Albrecht Dürer, who uh, this sort of famous painter and artist, uh, kind of gave us the idea of the four horsemen of the apocalypse through some of his drawings. He made this woodcut out of this rhinoceros based on the description that was sent up the road. And it's just wrong. <laughs> and there is no fact-checking, right? It's right. 1515, and nobody had seen a rhinoceros in, in forever. And so uh, and he's, he's drawn it. It's just this beautiful thing. It's uh, kind of wearing armor, and it's got this kind of uh, this expression. Like, it's just kind of put-upon expression. And it's got an extra little horn that they call the Durer hornlet that's sort of sticking up like a little stiletto like in between its ears. Uh, and, I lo- and so, but this coincided with woodcuts becoming very affordable because the printing press was getting going in the, in the northern renaissance. This was sort of the tabloid of its day, right? I mean, this yeah. was the fastest way to reproduce images and get them out there to the world. It was brand new. Art was affordable. I call, and I am not the only person who calls Ganda or Durer's rhinoceros, uh, as she or, she or he is known, the first viral image. The first image to ever go viral was this incorrect rhinoceros. And it continued for hundreds and hundreds of years. Another rhinoceros didn't show up, or this kind of rhinoceros didn't show up in Europe until the 18th century. So this wrong rhinoceros has been a rhinoceros to Europe longer than an actual rhinoceros has ever been a rhinoceros to them. I want to remind the radio audience, we are not high right now. (laughs) Even though this seems like a stoner conversation. Elena, what does it mean? Hold that thought. We got to take a very short break. We have Elena Passarello here. Her book is Animals Strike Curious Poses. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. My name is Luke Burbank, and we will be right back. Livewire gets support 
from Foley. You know, scientists are starting to figure out that pretty much every single thing we did in the 1950s, stuff that was considered normal and healthy, uh, was not normal and healthy. It was kind of making us sick, making us unhealthy. Cigarettes, BB guns, TV dinners. Don't even get me started on lawn darts. The history of becoming healthy is basically a slow dismantling of the 1950s piece by piece. The latest target, the traditional office desk. Sitting behind one all day is very, very bad for you. Like, you've probably noticed this. It feels bad after a whole day of doing that. And that is why we at Livewire, whether it's the Livewire offices or when I'm on stage hosting Livewire, it's why we use sit-stand desks provided by the wonderful folks at Fully. Fully is the Portland, Oregon company that has been making and distributing amazing furniture that keeps you productive, but also engaged for years. Fully knows this stuff better than just about anybody else out there. And they've been great supporters of Livewire. We really appreciate it. I'll tell you when I appreciate it, a moment like right now, when I'm recording this and I'm sitting on a TikTok stool that they sent me. I also use a Capisco chair that they're the exclusive U.S. distributor of when I'm at Livewire and I do need to sit down. Because, of course, we all want to sit down still sometimes, but fully makes the stuff uh, that you can sit on that's going to keep you healthy, keep you engaged, and keep your brain active. To find out more about what they're doing, head over to fully.com slash livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. It is our Wordstock show. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Our theme this week is Brave New World. We've got Elena Passarello here. Her latest book is Animals Strike Curious Poses. Uh, You write in the book about a number of different kind of famous animals throughout time. You also write about your childhood obsession with animals, and you've kind of described your relationship with animals as, quote, messed up. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What do you mean by that? Well, this was like late in putting the book together. I realized that I was sort of incriminating all these different groups of people over time for the way that they looked at animals incorrectly, like the all of Europe in the 16th century. And I was like, I got to come clean because I'm no Jane Goodall. I'm, you know, a kid from the suburbs who watched cartoons and went to the zoo. Uh, So I tried to think of an animal that best personified or not or animal sonified. Uh, that can be a word. That's a thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and the one that I came up with was Lancelot. And I don't know if we have any uh, end of Gen Xers who remember Lancelot, but Lancelot was a Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey circus star uh, who was a unicorn, sort of, uh, if anybody remembers him. He was a little shorter than the unicorns in like the last unicorn. He had sort of, his hair was sort of more permed, he had this sort of long, curly hair. <laughs> So if you, if you look deeper into the Lancelot controversy, it turns out, I hope I don't give anything away here, that Lancelot was actually a goat. And there's a patent for it that runs at the U.S. Patent Office. Uh, it's called pedicling, and it's where you could take a baby goat and change its horn buds when it's very, very young so that uh, instead of growing in two spots, uh, it grows in one. Uh, yeah, I know, it's kind of gross. Yeah, that doesn't seem great for the goat. And, and by the way... Yeah. I mean, that's like sort of the understatement of the show so far, but... Right. I mean, this is an example, among many examples in the book, of basically humans kind of mistreating animals, sometimes knowingly and sometimes unknowingly. Mm-hmm. Like you have um, one of the essays about Harry the, the turtle is written from the perspective of a turtle that Charles Darwin has picked up on Galapagos, I presume? That's right, a Galapagos Island tortoise. That kind yeah. of falls in love with 
with Darwin. Yeah, I, I think my book is maybe the only one on the shelves today that has a sex scene between the father of modern evolution and a Galapagos Island tortoise. I think you're right about that. I think that is the only book doing that, yeah. probably. <laughs> um, was that one of the messages that you wanted to transmit with the book, how we have really mistreated and made the lives of animals much worse in a lot of ways? Yes. Uh, I wanted to... I wanted people to see that it's complicated. It's full of emotional uh, attachment and love and storytelling, but often and almost always taking an animal into a place where it is in a cage, uh, some kind of cage, uh, and, and engaging with it in a way that isn't necessarily the best thing uh, for it. But at the same time, some of our greatest emotional content comes from the way that we've engaged with these animals. So that's why I thought Lancelot was kind of perfect, because he's not like some free-flying like goat uh, on an alp somewhere enjoying himself. That's not my relationship to animals. As a 21st century human, my relationship to animals is this like bedazzled horn, permed, surgically altered goat who's being just worshipped in this circus arena. Like they had him on a little dais and this lovely lady was like sort of like petting him and he was like sort of shaking as the the and you, the, you, you witnessed this with your own eyes yeah, as a kid a ton of us did if you go on the internet it has scarred like half of my generation these people who just saw this like crazy goat with a unicorn horn but that for me that's exact and i loved lancelot so that's that's what it means to be a 21st century lo human looking at animals now it's that it's whatever whatever that exchange is between weird 6 year old me and this other animal, this sort of unnatural creature of, of emotion and imagination and color and gaudiness, you know? Did you, in the process of researching and, and writing this book, did your, the way you think about animals and even the way that you live your life as it relates to animals change at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, always, I thought when I was putting the book together that it was going to be a lot of me really freaking out over the most exotic animals I could find, the, like the charismatic megafauna, right. as they're called. But you know what really got me was how close I now feel to the animals that I wrote about that are species that I see every day. So there's a pigeon in my book, there's a spider in my book, the chickens that I read about, horses, that now like our starlings, which are this you know, amazing bird that aren't even supposed to, it's not even supposed to be on this continent, right? Really? Do you know why there are starlings on the North American continent? Do tell. There's one reason. It's William Shakespeare. Really? So I don't know the name of this gentleman, but sometime during the Victorian era when a lot of people had a lot of bad ideas, this guy wanted to put... <laughs> That's a generous way to describe that period yeah. of history. Uh, there are a lot of them, actually. Uh, this guy wanted to put all the birds that were ever named in any Shakespeare plays into Central Park. And so they, they were successful with this? They brought them in, and a lot of the animals, a lot of the birds, they were like, hey, this sucks to live here, but the starlings were like, let's go. Uh, and... <laughs> And they actually became, they're an invasive species, so they took over the habitats and the food sources of a lot of native uh, birds, so uh, a lot of birders really look kind of down on starlings as these kind of invaders, but um, I love, every time I see one, it's because one day Shakespeare wanted, he just mentions in Henry, I think it's Henry IV, uh, uh, I think he compares this guy's stuttering to a starling or something like that. And that's, that's the reason that when, I'm, when you're out in your yard tomorrow, this, this beautiful mass, this murmuration of starlings. Is, is, that what, is that what a group of starlings is known as? Yup. A murmuration? Isn't that great? That is awesome. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. I like, thought that was, if you have over 10 public radio listeners, it's a murmuration <laughs> of 
public. No, it's Starlings. No, I think that's good. I, I will be remiss if I don't ask you a little bit about this, um, this screaming contest that you won uh, in New Orleans. You wrote another really great book called Let Me Clear My Throat, and you talk about your experience in this screaming contest. So you were the first female to win it. How does the contest work? What did you do? Why do you think you won? All of that. Well, the, the, my book was about the human voice, and I was looking at all these moments of extreme vocal American mo- culture, right? So Howard Dean is totally in the first book. Huh. But for me, the quintessential moment of, Remember when that could lose you an election? Yes, right? <laughs> if he would have done you that now... You were too excited when you said the states you were going to try to win. You have feelings, right? Like, yeah, no, not, not... Yeah, I think about that all the time. Um, but similar to uh, Howard Dean, uh, I think Marlon Brando, when he yelled Stella, the world paid attention in a really special way. Right. So they have this contest, and they've had it for, uh, I think, well over 30 years now uh, on Tennessee Williams' birthday uh, in Jackson Square in New Orleans. And you, they put like a Stanley or a Stella up on a balcony, and you just show up and you scream at her. And then there are these like celebrity judges who uh, figure out if you make it to the finals and then you scream again. And then if you win, you get like a, a tote bag <laughs> and like, like a ticket to like rock and bowling or whatever <laughs> and, and bragging rights, you know? Yeah. Uh, and there's a t-shirt in it that was way too big for me because uh, the, a woman had never won it before, you know? And women have won it since, by the right. way. Right. Did you think you were going to win going in? No, I thought I was going to go and I was going to write an essay about losing. Right, trying to like put on this iconic male American figure and, and losing, and you know, there's a lot more tension in that anyway, so I thought right. I would make a better essay. So, I mean, I have to, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I think we're gonna, we have to hear a scream. Okay. I feel like we're in the presence of greatness here, and it would be a real missed opportunity if we didn't. Well, it has been, uh, Six years. Do you feel like you were better at screaming six years ago? Very much so. Was yeah. That a, what's that a result of? Well, I drink less now. Uh, and I think that... <laughs> so I have more inhibitions. Well, so in a roundabout way, you're telling me I might be a world champ Stella screamer and didn't even know it. I think the key to a really, really good scream that you're only going to do once, not like if you're a professional screamer, like a screamo musician or something, is to really be loose. And for me, bourbon is a great loosener. All right, so with those caveats that it was six years ago and that you don't have any bourbon, we're all on the edge of our It's like if, like, Greg Luganis, like, stopped diving and then somebody was like, hey, give it a shot, and he has, like, a suit on, and you're like, come on, Greg. Not that I'm the Greg Luganis of screaming, Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think he spent his whole life perfecting his diving, and I think you just got drunk in the French Quarter and screamed Stella, but there are similarities. No, that's, I mean... That's how, that's like the up, the up, up, I think I prepared more for this than most of the people who are just like literally walking down the street and they just start screaming and then just people. trying to win some beads or something. Yeah, probably. they just want beads. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you for humoring us. This is Elena Passarello. Her book is Animals Strike Curious Poses. She is being very generous by giving us a, a Stella scream here. And, and maybe after I yell it, if you guys could yell, what? <laughs> Oh, that's good. Because if I was Stella, you know, in the movie, Stella doesn't get to talk, right? She's this silenced female, and he screams and screams, and then she sort of just sulturally comes down, and they kiss. But I think Stella should have just been like, what? You know? So maybe, so the, okay. that'll make me feel better. So after she s- screams Stella, we have people that are plugging their ears in the second row of the theater. I don't... You've lived a very, very protected life. 
if you're if you're actually worried, you're gonna get aural <laughs> damage. That's good. I continue. I'm I'm happy for you. All right, here we go. Are you ready? All right, here we go. One, uh, count me down. One, two, three. One, two, three. That was amazing. By the way, I'm glad you were plugging your ears. That was way louder than I expected it to be. It hurt, right? It's like a Gallagher show, only with sound. Unbelievable. Just like... Elena Passarello, everybody. <laughs> Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market who is committed to ensuring wild-caught seafood is held to standards of sustainability and animal welfare. Because raised well should be a compliment that applies to people and fish alike. Learn more at WholeFoodsMarket.com. Well, hello there, Livewire podcast listener. It is I, Luke. Listen, I think we can both agree on one thing. The Livewire podcast is amazing. How do I know that you agree with that? Because you're listening to it right now. But did you know it could be amazinger? That's right. We are looking for your feedback so that we can make an even better podcast for you. And also so we can attract the right kind of sponsors to the show and maybe the right kind of grant opportunities. So we wanted to find out some information about you. That's right. What do you like? What don't you like? We just want to find out what makes you the beautiful, amazing Livewire podcast listener that you are. So if you could do us a kindness and head over to livewireradio.org backslash podcast and click on the big red survey button at the top of the page. It takes like 15 seconds to take the survey. I don't mean that figuratively. We've timed it. It actually takes 15 seconds. And if you do take this 15-second survey, you will be entered in a drawing to win a Livewire totes bag. Yes, it is a tote bag that says totes on it. And also a Livewire t-shirt. Those are two amazing products that you might win just for taking 15 seconds out of your busy day. And again, it'll help us make an even better podcast for you. Again, it's livewireradio.org backslash podcast. And thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. All right, our theme this week is Brave New World, and we asked the crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theater, what is an irrational fear of yours? And... Um, I'm going to tell you, this is a crowd that is really inside their own heads. Um, Joyce said, uh, her irrational fear, I've never heard of this happening really, but I keep my toilet lid closed and look before sitting down for fear of a rat swimming up and biting my tush. Did that happen to you? I, how are you even alive? I would be institutionalized after that. I mean, my body would heal, but my mind would never be okay. Ian said an irrational fear that he has, clowns in places where clowns are very unlikely to be, like my shower. Uh, Lauren has an irrational fear that the oyster will revive as it's sliding down my throat. I'm just going to let everyone process that. We'll come back to some more of these maybe in a little bit.
Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Our next guest has an amazing ability to intake events, events from his life, events from the wider world, and export beautifully written accounts of those events, illuminating the human experience in the process. He's a writer for The New Yorker. He's won a bunch of prestigious awards. He's written best-selling books. His latest is At the Stranger's Gate, Arrivals in New York. Please welcome the amazing Adam Gopnik to Livewire. Um, welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I loved reading this book. It's like uh, many of the things that you write, you take so many moments that could otherwise just seem maybe even banal, and you write about them in a way that elevates them and, uh, and really illuminates the world. Um, you, you mentioned a piece of advice that your father gave you when mm-hmm. you're leaving Montreal That's for right. New York City. You're like 20 or something. Exactly, yeah. And he says, uh, never underestimate the other person's insecurity. That's, that's right. You know, fathers, when your kids are leaving for the big city, are supposed to give you a piece of strong advice. You remember D'Artagnan's father in The Three Musketeers said to him... Who can forget? Who can ever forget this? When he was leaving Gascony, uh, his father said to him, fight duels with everyone you meet. And he did, right? But my father was a Jewish professor of English literature. So that was not the advice he was about to give me, right? Make sure you have your sword and fight a duel. He said to me, never underestimate the other person's insecurities. And it is by far the best advice I've ever taken through life. How does that actually um, work in your life when you're in a situation? You're just... Assuming the other person is motivated by their own insecurities? Yeah, well, you know, I think it particularly is when you're in the business of arriving in a new place and you're trying to make your way. And the mistake you make is to think that everybody else who's sitting at the table, especially people of some accomplishment, um, are totally encased in the armor of their own certainty when, in fact, they're trembling inside and want desperately to be appreciated and to be approved of. And the mistake we always make is not to see that the other person is a mirror of ourselves, who's trembling and nervous and miserable and desperate for approval, just as we, just like this moment we're sharing right now. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know. I feel like you, you, you really nailed most of my motivating <laughs> factors in my life. Um, why did you decide to write about this particular time in your life? You and your wife, um, then I think your maybe fiance, but eventually your girlfriend, wife, yeah. arriving in New York and, and New York sort of in the eighties. Two, two why reasons, this? Luke. One is that um, for the first time, the eighties seemed like a long way away. Until fairly recently, they just seemed like the beginning of something. Uh, and now suddenly, there's a kind of forty-year rule of nostalgia. Things that are forty years. Did you go- invent that? I invented the forty-year rule of nostalgia. It's one of the few things I have on my resume to to point to. No, I to. found that really interesting in the book. But explain your theory of the forty years okay, of nostalgia. Okay, so if you think about it, at any one moment, usually the kind of place we look back to for. Uh, Joy, we think it was a better time, was 40 years ago. So in the 1940s in Hollywood, for instance, all the musicals were about 1900. Meet me in St. Louis. Take me out to the ball game. Uh, all of that was the site of nostalgia. Uh, the 1960s, back a decade ago, in the height of Mad Men and so on, everybody was fascinated by the 1960s. And I think that, that constantly goes on that way, too. And my theory is the reason is, is not so much that artists are interested in it, as that the suits, the producers 
who make movies are always in their 40s, and it's just the time before they were born. And we're always fascinated by the time when our parents were conceiving us, right? Because right. that always seems like a more interesting and glamorous time than the time we're in now. We're talking to Adam Gopnik. His latest book is At the Stranger's Gate. Um, I am always fascinated with how people live and where they live, and I was very happy to see how much of this book is dedicated to apartments that you had in New York? It's really, it's about <laughs> apartments and insects. That's basically, yeah. it's about apartments yes. and vermin. Yes, was an, and including uh, the first apartment that you had, which um, was extremely small. You describe it in the book, uh, you say that it defined impossibility. Well, we loved it. It was a 9 by 11 room, a 9 by 11 basement room. And that's not an exaggeration. That was the totality of our universe for three years. And when we had moved to New York, look, we expected to get an apartment that was like a five-story walk-up because in all those great rom-coms of the 60s, right? Yeah. Barefoot in the park and sure. Sunday in New York and all. That's where the people lived. But then when we got to New York, we realized those people had never moved since right. 1961. They were still in those apartments, right? So they were renting out the basement rooms now, right? Because that's a basic rule of New York life. It, apartments, it's like a game of musical chairs with no music and no chairs. That's, the, <laughs> that's, how you, that's how you hunt for an apartment. So we lived there, and it was great. I have no memory of looking at my wife in those years because we were so much on top of one another physically. But I see her like a cubist portrait. I have an eye over here and a little piece of a nose there. Because the of the of actual, the physical, actual physical space you space were in. We, and, the, such a tiny space. And you think that this actually kept you from having arguments. Yes, because you know the key to an argument is, is when you back up and say, I saw her as she really was for the first time. Or you say, you know, for the first time I could see him in proportion and I saw that we couldn't back up. There was no seeing her that way for the first time. There was no getting her in proportion, you know, right there. Adjacency was the principle of the space. This is totally counterintuitive to what we think no, about we had, being in a small space. We had one fight, which I write about in the, in the book. We fought about rare and well-done meat. My wife comes from a well-done family and I come from a long line of rare. So... That was the fight we took with us, and, we, and it, was, it was bitter and nasty, and I describe how we finally resolved it. With uh, every, everyone should hope that somebody at some point writes about them the way that you write about your wife in this book. It's so beautiful. Oh, that's... And, and there are these moments, too, where you're writing the book, but she's looking over your shoulder, like, telling you how you, she's coming she off be in the yes, book. Yes, how she should be described, right? Yeah. She wants to be, you know, not too much of a... I write about her taste for fashion, and... and it, it, it goes on. The part of the book that I thought was truest about our relationship was the part she liked least. Actually, it was the only part she didn't want me to publish. Because I describe it in how when you start off in a marriage, you're exploring sex all the time. And then at a certain point, after about 10 years, you're enacting sex. You sort of know what you're doing. And then after a certain point, after about 20 years, you start reenacting sex. And you become like those Civil War reenactors, you know, who go away for the weekend and they know exactly what uniforms they're going to wear, what weapons they're going to have, how they're going to advance, who's going to retreat. And the weird thing about it is, they enjoy the battle much more than the people who fought it for the first time. Right. And that's what it's like to have been in a long relationship, sex in a long marriage, like Civil War reenactment. For some reason, yeah. she didn't want me to publish. Yeah, I can imagine why. <laughs> I love how you talk about in the book that most long-term relationships have one argument they've been having. Right. And you write about your grandparents, which is totally fascinating to me, and, and it'll be hard for the radio listeners to totally follow this, but 
You, your grandparents basically came together because of you in a certain way, right? Yes. Explain is, the connection. I kind of arranged their first date. That's right. Because this is insane, and it gives you an, an insight into how crazy my family is. After I was already born, my father's father met my mother's mother, and they fell in love. And they had a secret love affair, and they ended up divorcing their spouses and marrying each other. So I had, my father's father was married to my mother's mother. I had one set of grandparents throughout my life. And they were like a tune version, a cartoon version of my parents. Because they were exactly the same people, only older with immigrant accents. That That's is a, a really interesting family structure. And you know what's so weird about it, Luke? Is that I never knew it was strange, right? And even to this day, when people laugh, I think, what are they laughing at? Those are my grandparents they're laughing at. But that's absolutely true. Wow. You have written about so many topics in your career. You've written about um, food and art and, and living in Paris and gun control a lot. A lot. Yeah. Uh, is it different for you when you're writing about something as important as gun control um, versus writing about a meal you had? No, you know, it, it, I think it all comes from the same uh, impulse, right? Which is to organize your experience. It's as simple as that. You know, experience comes at us in many forms and in many, uh, in many varieties. And some people just kind of can accept it as a wash, and some of us want to organize it and try and make sense of it. So for me, it's all continuous in that way. The only thing I'd, I'd say that, that makes it different is, is that every writer has responsibilities as an artist, you hope, and certainly as a citizen. And you're constantly um, trying to be aware of both of those. So in the last five years of my own life as a writer, my own sense of responsibility as a citizen has come forward more, particularly writing about gun control, writing about politics, things I didn't write before, and writing this particular book, which is essentially a romantic comedy about a young couple um, learning about life, uh, learning to exchange poetry for prose, basically, is what they do. Um, I was conscious, frankly, Luke, I was thinking, is this the right book to be writing at a time like this? Is it, does it make sense to write a romantic comedy at a time when there's no romance and there's no comedy uh, in, in our lives, our public lives. And I finally decided, yes, it does, A, because my publisher wanted the book, and yeah. secondly, because for me, what the book is really about is about the way we build meaning in our lives in the most uh, uncomfortable and the most absurd of circumstances. We're constantly trying to build meaning. That's why we have relationships. That's why we run away to new cities. And because what's wrong with our our public life right now, what's wrong with what's happening in our country, is the evaporation of meaning, the evaporation of real meaning, and its replacement with fear and terror and all those other things that uh, erase meaning, don't let us build meaning. I like to think that maybe this is a useful political book in a surreptitious way. Uh, this book is so interesting, and your life has been so interesting because you, you write about showing up in New York and you you want to study art, and you want to write magazine pieces, and you also want to be a lyricist. A songwriter. Yeah. A songwriter. And those are all things that you did and do. Like, is it true, though, that in your early days in New York, you were trying to get a song to Art Garfunkel? Yeah, we had met once. Um, I had written sort of the college show, uh, and it was about the life of Vladimir Tatlin, a very important uh, early 20th century constructivist architect. And I figured I was six weeks from Broadway um, with that show, right? Yeah. <laughs> because Wait, so hold on. So you wrote a musical about this architect? Uh, Vlad, a Russian avant-garde architect of the early 20th century. I can't believe that wasn't a hit. I, I, they never got on. I can't believe... What was the no, big number from the, that? The big number was about... It was called... Um, uh, 
the towering that's a tower, building wall. the tower. Yeah, exactly. You know, so it was. He's actually a fascinating guy because he designed what would have been the greatest building in the world, the tallest building in the world, and it never got built. So it was a oh, metaphor is... for the Russian Revolution. Okay, okay. But I'm giving away the story now, but don't. But that was what it was. The they're and, still so, going to buy a ticket. Yeah, don't worry. So. Then we had once met someone who had once been to dinner with the sister of the psychotherapist of Art Garfunkel. And we, so you had a straight line, basically. Straight line. So yeah. I made a cassette of my best songs, Martha doing harmonies, and I did it too, and it went right there. We are still waiting for word from Art 37 years later. I have to imagine that in your life you've met him now at least a couple of times since then, I, right? No, you know, I never have. I've met Paul Simon, and I told him this story, and he kind of looked at me with hooded eyes like, what do you expect from Art, right? But... <laughs> <laughs> we have Adam Gopnik here. His latest book is At the Stranger's Gate, Arrivals in New York. This is Livewire from PRI, and we will be right back. Hey, it's Luke. We want to give a special thanks this week to Cindy Thompson of Portland, Oregon, and Philip Fensterer of Chicago, Illinois. Cindy and Philip are part of the Livewire member community, and they have generously been supporting the show with a donation each month. So a huge thanks to Cindy and Philip for making this happen. And as a reminder, it is Livewire's fall member drive. We are hoping that you will follow Cindy and Philip's lead by joining us as we look to get as many members signed up as we can. We've got a matching donation out there as well. So your money that you commit to Livewire will go even further. If you would like to help us keep making this show happen, you can head over to Livewire Radio. Dot org to find out more. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. It is our Wordstock show. Our theme this hour is Brave New World. We have Adam Gopnik here. His latest book, At the Stranger's Gate, arrivals in New York. All right, Adam, as a cultural critic, you've weighed in on art and food and life in Paris and lots of important, very high-class stuff. Um, but there's a very specific area of criticism that we here at Livewire are interested in, and that is finding the one person who leaves a terrible review online for a universally acclaimed film. Uh-huh. Uh, this is a real thing that yeah, you'll right. see if you go through IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes. And these critics can be very tough, but they do sort of have their own logic. And so what we thought would be an interesting exercise would be to read some of these criticisms of otherwise beloved films and then get your take as an actual critic as to if these are fair criticisms or they're overly uh, um, critical. It's a game that we're calling One Star Takedowns. Three, four. Hey now, you're a one star. Get your game on. Go play. Okay, so I am going to read you. These are, these are very real, real reviews play. of other, otherwise kind of widely well-regarded projects. Um, how about this? This is a review of the 1980 Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining. Somebody wrote, it's hard to believe that a hotel that size in Colorado would close in the winter with all of the skiing business. Yes. <laughs> is that a fair criticism yes. of the film? that strikes me as a totally fair criticism, right? I think that, always, that kind of stuff in movies drives me crazy. You know, why would they do that? Why would they close in the middle of the winter? Why and would let, that place exist? Yes, and then... If not for when it's snowy. Yes, no, I think that's a totally fair criticism of an overrated film. Okay. Yeah. All right. You heard it here from Adam Gopnik. All right, how about this? This is a review of the film The Godfather. I need to stress these are real reviews. Because right. this one strains credulity. 
This person's review was short but sweet. God made no appearance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's a very smart remark, actually, because if you think about it, one of the things that's true about The Godfather is that it's a very, I mean, of course it's a dark film, but it's a really dark film because at the end, the whole thing is set, the massacre is set to communion music, right? To first communion music, and it's basically saying uh, uh, no one here gets out alive. The devil rules and God does not exist in, in in truth. So yeah, it's a very, very despairing movie. I think that's a... Wow, good. so that's a that's a, a much more insightful criticism than... than the, probably would... than the person intended. Right. You know, right. <laughs> but, All right, so that gets, right. A, that, that, that gets an approval from you, right, professional critic Adam Gopnik. We, right. How about this? Um, this reviewer went to West Side Story, or watched it at some point, of course, 1961 classic film, their, their critique of it, West Side Story, it is a musical. I didn't know that. They were walking around <laughs> snapping their fingers. I was like, oh, no, this is a musical. <laughs> well, you either love musicals or you don't love musicals. But, you know, that's, again, that's not uninsightful. I once had a chance to do a conversation on stage like this with Stephen Sondheim. The great, oh, wow. And the great lyricist of West Side Story and a million other things. And he finds West Side Story deeply embarrassing for that very reason. Because he says all of us... The guys who wrote it, Leonard Bernstein, Steve Sondheim, said, we were all Upper West Side Jews, he said, and we had no idea about the lives of the kids we were describing, he said. And the whole thing is, and I said, you should have called it Upper West Side Story. And he said, yeah, that we could write. That we could write. So, you know, so in that sense, the idea that it's kind of all stylized with the finger snapping and the jets and the sharks and is completely phony, that's something that one of its creators kind of believes. I, we ginned this up thinking that we were, you were going to savage these criticisms, but it sounds like these people could all work at the New Yorker. We, we, have, we, have, uh, we have less uh, vocal than that. Yeah. I, yeah, I think so. No, you know, the truth of it is, is that, and this is the truth about criticism, is that criticism is at its worst when it's evaluative, right? When it's saying good or bad. And criticism is at its best when it's interpretive, when it's saying, you know, there's something weird about that. And there is something truthful when someone says, you know, it's not that West Side Story is a musical. You should know it's a musical, right? But there are musicals that you don't question for a moment there being musicals. You watch Singing in the Rain and no one has ever said, oh, gee, I didn't know it was a musical. But there is something a little forced about the beginning of West Side Story when you're saying, so, oh, no, this is going to be a musical about kids on the street and they're all going to have knives and they're going to dance like dancers and all that, too. <laughs> so that's not, a, that's not a false response. Well, this person... ChubbyBunny47 at Yahoo.com will be very happy to know that. Adam Gopnik, everybody. (laughs) All right. This is Livewire from PRI. Our theme this week is Brave New World. We are coming to you as part of the Wordstock Festival here in Portland. Uh, we asked the crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theater, what is an irrational fear that you have? Uh, Jane has an irrational fear. She says, I fear I will run out of things to worry about. <laughs> Lori's irrational fear that I will reach into the disposal to retrieve a spoon or something and that the disposal will mysteriously get turned on. I am so afraid of that. I, like, clear the whole house out. I'm like, everybody go stand in the yard while I do this. I don't want anyone touching this. Uh, Corey's irrational fear. I just got a Sonicare. It's so fast. 
I worry if the non-bristle part hits my teeth, they'll chip or fly out of my mouth. I can barely use it, and I might return it. If anyone needs a gently used Sonicare, see Corey in the back of the theater. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who partners with farmers to help ensure no meat in store has added hormones or antibiotics. Because the words mystery and meat don't need to apply to this week's lunch. Whole Foods Market. We believe in real food. Our musical guest this hour has roots in Trinidad and Tobago, but has really bloomed right here in Portland, Oregon. See what I did there? Bloomed. Rose City. Pretty good. Her debut album, Tease, is out now. Please welcome Blossom to Livewire. It can't just be me I know you feel it too It can't just be me Screaming out to break free Won't give it what you want Might give it what you need that's just me A natural remedy Won't give you what you want You might take what you need And just leave Do you really want me? Oh baby, do you me Like our chemistry Do you even like me? Oh, baby, do you only like a possibility? Do you even like me? Oh, baby, do you only like a chemistry? Do you even want me? Oh, baby, do you only like a possibility? Possibilities like possibilities like our possibilities like our possibilities like our possibilities. All right, that is going to do it for our show. Thanks to our guests, Adam Gopnik, Elena Passarello, and Blossom. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Whole Foods Market, and Fully. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Thank you this show to Amanda Bullock and everybody at Wordstock. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. And Melanie Sevchenko is our assistant editor. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Jason Powers. Thank you so much, as always, to Carlson Audio. 
Lauren Masterson is our development director, and Laura Harden is our marketing director. Tim Harkins is our operations manager. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Roger Meyer of Portland, Oregon for his support. For more information about our show, you can head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you. That is Blossom. Right here on LiveWire. PRI, Public Radio International. Dear LiveWire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.